You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. We started last week a series on the book of 2 Corinthians called Vulnerability. Now, we even like last week when I used that word, we got a lot of nods of how nobody really likes to talk about vulnerability. Nobody likes vulnerability. You know, um, I get it. I get it. But it's just such a great theme when we look at this book of 2 Corinthians. And um, uh, Brene Brown, any of you ever heard of her? She actually is the researcher on vulnerability. She has one of the top five, I think, TED Talks ever on the subject of vulnerability. She's written a number of books on it, and she happens to be a Christian as well. Um, So this is what she says about, she says, vulnerability is the last thing I want to see you to see in me, but the first thing I look for in you. (laughs) Did you get it? It's like, I want to know that you are open to me, like I, that I could share and give, con- and, and that you're going to understand my weaknesses and my faults and my failings and all that stuff. But I don't want you to see, I don't want, it's just, there is this paradox going on here. And um, we talked about it last week that Paul could have kind of put up his armor. Um, he could have basically blown off the Corinthian church. They were his biggest problem church. <laughs> and um, they, they were just filled with a lot of issues. And, and the two letters that we have, two out of three, and we said last week, thank God we don't have that third letter that probably falls in between because it would have been the harsh letter. If you don't, and the other two are harsh enough. At, at moments. It's kind of like how a parent has to talk sometimes with the kids, right? Have you had those harsh talks ever with your children? Maybe. Because you love them, right? You feel like you're pulling your hair out sometimes with them, but that's what you do. And Paul could have just said, blow it off. I'm leaving Corinth. It was a failed effort moving on. And he could have gone to his churches like Philippi and Thessalonica and others that were much easier to work with. But he chose. And he chose a little more than um, what I'm talking about because he chose to be open to them. And he knew for them to become open to God and what God really wanted in their lives, he would have to be open to them himself and show himself vulnerable before them. And we get that all the way through this text. And vulnerability, a lot of people think it's weakness. You know, I've got to show me. Have you ever been in those small groups at work or something? And it's like, okay, everybody show one foible or fault. And and everybody's like, oh, I don't want to do that again. Vulnerability is not weakness. Vulnerability is openness. Openness. That you're open to life, open to the life of another, open to love, open to what others have to say, open to serve them, open to criticism, yes, and open to difficulties and struggles and heartache. But it's openness. And that takes courage, actually. It's not something that's easy to do. It's risky. Of all people, I think Teddy Roosevelt, I know. Somebody, I didn't know him. Uh, Any of you know him? Any of you? No, okay. 
just a few years overlap in your lives? Okay. You were a child when he was older? Okay. Yeah, no. But uh, you don't think of him being a rough rider and all. But I think he understood vulnerability. This is one of his more famous quotes. He said this, It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly. Great quote, because in 2 Corinthians, we're seeing that Paul is the one who's in the arena. He's the one who's all in with the Corinthians. He is the one who strives valiantly, the one who faces his own shortcomings and his weaknesses, who knows great devotion and great enthusiasm, who spends himself on the most worthy of all causes, and who dares greatly. So that's what we're talking about when we're talking about vulnerability. It's not weakness. It's actually great strength and it's very hard to do, but boy, when you're doing it, it doesn't feel great. Just like courage doesn't feel courageous and bravery doesn't feel brave, you're dealing with fears, you're dealing with risk, you're dealing with openness, and you are dealing with the possibilities of rejection, etc. And yet, it's the only way to really live. The only way to really live. And Paul's calling us to do exactly to follow him in how he is going to be vulnerable, open to the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and to them. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when the, they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now when, um, I don't know how other ministers do it, I really don't sometimes. When I get a passage, I, we planned this a while back, this series, and it sounds good. And then you get to the passage, you go like, what am I going to do with this, right? Do I understand it? 
have I really, am I preaching what the text says or am I just using it like as a diving board where I just use that text and then jump off into something else that I really want to talk about? I want to make sure that I'm actually preaching the text. And um, so it's fascinating, James, by the way, that we just sang that last song that says, this is my confidence. You've never failed me yet. The word confidence, I think, strings this together. It comes up here, and such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God that Paul says here. Now, what's fascinating is I studied this text to say, okay, what does this have to say to us about vulnerability, about everything, about life? What is Paul getting at with the Corinthians? Um, that word, popoithesis, confidence, don't, don't worry, the slide will come up later, but, but popoithesis, which is the word confidence, you, kinda, you find out it occurs six times in the New Testament, four times in this book, 2 Corinthians, and two other times by the hand of Paul in Philippians and Ephesians. And then when you read through that and you go like, oh, here's an occurrence of the word confidence in this book, he's got a whole focus on he has confidence not in himself but in God, you find out there's a whole uh, constellation of other words that are used in this text from persuaded to boldness to freedom, etc., that fit with confidence. And what you also start realizing, I think, or I started realizing this week is Paul is saying you can live with confidence in this life, but there are two different types that people seek. There's, first of all, we're going to look at from this text the confidence that comes in the letter, that is the letter of the law, then the confidence in the spirit and how to live with that kind of confidence. Okay? Confidence in the letter. You know, how, does, how do most people, what do we all do? What do I do? What does the world do when they try to be confident? Right? I set up, I see what the standards are. You know, Kenzie, I think you went through certain standards, right? And you pass certain tests, et cetera. She's now a dentist, right? Woohoo! Doing a great job. She's trained for this for years, but you have a set of objective standards. You get measured against them. You feel confident when you meet that standard, right? And I don't want a dentist who doesn't meet that standard. <laughs> We measure ourselves often by kind of a set of rubrics. Lately, though, it seems like more people don't measure themselves against the objective standard outside, but a subjective standard of what does everybody think of me. Um, and we set up kind of, OK, I need to, have to meet their expectation. Somehow I'm going to gain confidence, my self-image, my worth, based on either I've met this standard or I've met this standard that seems amorphous. So whether it is the brass ring on the carousel, I'm grabbing for that, I know what I'm grabbing for, or the perfect score on an SAT, there's this objective standard in some form. And Paul himself talks about how he could have confidence in the objective standard of the law. That word papoithesis comes up in Philippians, where he says this, though I myself have reasons for confidence. <clears throat> I have confidence in the flesh. 
If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then he goes on in Philippians to list all the things that he's done and accomplished, memorizing, basically, any Pharisee memorized the entire Torah. Have you done that? I guess you've not met that standard, have you? Okay. In addition, he kept the Torah. <laughs> he kept the law. And he could look at his pedigree, he says, his um, he's from the tribe of Benjamin. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's, as to the law, zealous, Pharisee. He persecuted the church. In a sense, he says, I've got a 4.2 GPA because I've overachieved. I have that perfect SAT and ACT score. I could get in on all this. And then Paul says, no. I th he, and we know this term. It's in this chapter, this term. He says, all of that? He says, is rubbish, scubalon, manure, garbage. It stinketh. Yes. That's how people do it, though. They commend themselves, as Paul says at the beginning. They hand over, they try to get a letter of recommendation, an award, a full resume, whatever, to feel good for a while. And Paul says, at the beginning of 2 Corinthians 3, are we doing that? Are we commending ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? That's what the super apostles are going to be doing that we're going to read about later in this book. These people who look good, have confidence, poise, pizzazz, could speak eloquently, victory, you know, promises all over the place. They look like that. Paul says, not going down that road. I'm not looking for a sufficiency in myself. I'm not looking at my pedigree. I am looking to Jesus Christ. Finding confidence. Why doesn't he go down that road? I think you kind of know. It only works so long. Okay? And it depends on how high the standard is. <laughs> you know? It only works for so long. So long as I get a number of retweets, likes, and um, you know, shares, then I feel good. So long as my GPA stays high enough, so long as I meet certain standards, so long as I'm ahead of my neighbors in terms of the toys that I have, then I have confidence. But what really happens if I'm going to pursue this kind of confidence to look good in front of others by whatever standard, objective or subjective, do you know what really happens at that point in time? I start putting out a false self, a veil, as Paul will say in this text, a mask, something to cover over. Because if anything you know like about any human being and you know about me, I've got my faults. I don't meet the standards. I can't always be that good. In fact, I'm not, right? But I have to put out this false self. So he says in 2 Corinthians 3, their minds were hardened, for to this day when they read the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil covers over their hearts. We wear masks in order to look good to others and keep our confidence. We have a veil that covers over 
what's behind it. But I think John Lynch, in his book, The Cure, tells us quite well what happens when you wear a mask. He says, no one told me that when I wear a mask, only my mask receives love. Okay. When you're closed in, covered over, trying to look perfect, defend your, you might be able to voice off any attacks to your, quote, confidence, but it's an insecure confidence as long as, so long as nobody really sees the real me. But you're weighed down, Paul says, by the law. And he was doing it himself with God's law, trying to meet his standard and finding within himself his own sufficiency. That word came up numerous times as he talked about. And he realized that was a dead end. In fact, I would say you could say Paul was a perfectionist as a Pharisee, trying to keep it perfectly. And he did it better than everyone else, and yet that's not good enough. You know, Brene Brown in her one book, Daring Greatly, says perfectionism is a defensive move. It's the belief that if we do things perfectly and look good, perfect, we can minimize or avoid the pain of blame, judgment, and shame. Perfectionism is a 20-ton shield we lug around thinking it will protect us when in fact it's the very thing that really prevents us from being seen. She goes on to write, um, I think a diagnosis of where we're at. She says, in shame-prone cultures where parents, leaders, and administrators consciously or unconsciously encourage people to connect their self-worth to what they produce, I see disengagement, blame, gossip, stagnation, favoritism, and a total dearth of creativity and innovation. Ouch. Um, you think we're there? Do you not see all the disconnections that are happening in our society right now? All the blame games that are going on from one side, all the labeling of others, all the trying to protect our side and shoot down the other? Because we're trying to gain a confidence we cannot. Now, at the same time, I don't want to leave you with the impression that objective standards are not good or of no use, you know, I do actually have a degree to be a pastor, I studied this stuff, and we have good standards for financial accountability, for instance, here at, F at Thrive. We don't just, oh, whatever. You know, we have those things. Uh, you expect, and you should expect me to perform my duties for being a pastor, a minister of the gospel. You shouldn't just say, oh, well, you know, we're gonna love him anyways. Well, you might love me anyways, but you don't have to pay me anyways. <laughs> Right? If that were the case. And students at FGCU, when I teach a class, they actually do have to earn a grade. And they do earn the grade that they get. They can uh, say, like Vicky probably knows, well, you, I should have got. It's like, no, you earned the grade you got. It's not that I gave you the grade. You earned that grade by what you did or didn't do. That all is true. And as I mentioned, I'm glad. Dentists do have to go and have certain high standards of care, right? Yeah, we don't want to go to a doctor who didn't, you know, oh, yeah, I got it in the mail, my degree. I paid, you know. And I'm not also saying, by the way, that God's law is not good or perfect or just. Paul would not say any of the Torah is something that you can just say, well, whatever, it was relative. No. 
But the law, the letter, cannot produce what it demands. It cannot give you what you need. It describes the reality. It describes the target. But it doesn't give you the power to get there. You can't necessarily get there just because you know. It's like me trying to run a 100-meter dash and break the world record. Ain't going to happen. I know what the standard is. That's why Paul writes it this way, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. And later on, he says, um, in 2 Corinthians 3, 9, we didn't read this, but it's in um, the verses in between. For if there was a glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness was far exceeded in glory. He describes two different ministries that God has. And notice, one of condemnation. And you go like, ooh, I don't like that. There are things that need to be condemned. There are things that need to be put to death. There are things that need to be killed off. In me, my self-sufficiency, my egotism, my narcissistic tendencies, my willing to try, my desire to take God and make, you know, God follow me. All of those things need to be put to death. That is the ministry of the law. The law kills and it needs to. Paul describes the difference between the two, not as one is dead and one is alive, but this one kills and this one brings life. And the ministry that he says that brings life is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's life-giving. And the Christian church in Corinth, trying to pursue confidence in themselves and their ability, or trying to get you know, letters of recommendation, or all of that type of stuff that they were looking at, Paul is saying that is a dead end. It's actually killing you to pursue that. It's killing off your love for each other. It's putting an end to your growth and openness. So, confidence in the letter doesn't work. Confidence in the spirit. Paul contrasts that. He says, this is the ministry of righteousness that is so much more glorious. This one is ending. This one has begun now. The life-giving way of the Spirit who gives his own very life who lives within you and gives you your sufficiency. It's not in your performance. It's not what you've accomplished. It's not even in the strength of your faith. It's in the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the gift of the Holy Spirit is to present Jesus Christ to you. It's not in your degrees or pedigree. It's not in your looks. It's not in your income. It's not in your brains or your brawn. It's outside of yourself in Jesus Christ. Such, Paul says, is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. 2 Corinthians 3, 4. That is our confidence. We have through Christ toward God. The other place outside of the letter of 2 Corinthians where the word popoithesis comes up is in Ephesians chapter 3. And this is what Paul says there. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. I have confidence through faith in him, trusting him, not myself, open to God through Christ, who we let see us, no veil anymore, nothing covering over, no need to cover up, 
warts and all, failures, feelings, hopes, dreams, desires. Jesus gets to see it all, and when he sees it all, he loves us. Is that amazing? Aren't the stories in the Gospels, we read through a number of them in our last series on the Gospel of Mark, amazing how Jesus encounters people and they both are scared to death because they don't meet any of his standards, of course. And yet, all of a sudden, they realize he loves them anyway. Zacchaeus being a prime example of that. But you can name every other human encounter he had. We no longer have to play games or put on a false self. We can be seen And we can start to see clearly that it is about this relationship. It's not about a bunch of regulations. And this becomes the community of grace in which we belong. Now, you might go like, oh, yeah, of course. We all, that's what grace is. And yet, why is it that I vacillate between the two types of confidence? Why is it I struggle with this yet? Now, How am I getting over this? That's the question. How do I live in this kind of confidence of the spirit? You know, I do often play both sides. Oh, yeah, I want to have, oh, yes, it's all about Jesus, all about what he says of me. And yet, boy, I do check out how many people are liking my posts. Oh, yeah, I don't care what other people say. We have all said that, and yet... We all do care what everybody else says. So what do I do? Do I give myself a lecture? Do I try to give myself, do I try to just increase my faith? I should believe stronger. I'd better believe. That's going the way, by the way, of the flesh again. That's going by the way of the letter. That's going by the way of the old song of self-sufficiency. This is what Paul says at the end, and I think this is the, um, the key He says, now the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. So the spirit gives us freedom. The veil comes off, and we see the glory of the Lord. Now, where do we see the glory of the Lord in the most inglorious place, the cross. I don't know if you realize this, the Gospel of John, again and again, that's one of the major themes is to display the glory of God and glorify your son and all this stuff that John, uh, Jesus says again and again in the Gospel of John. And the glory is at the cross, which is the throne, his enthronement. Jesus there is totally stripped, unveiled for our eyes to see God in his fullness, in his weakness, in his vulnerabilities. I don't know if you know this. The Latin word where vulnerable comes from is vulnerabilis. And do you know what it means? Woundedness. By his wounds, you are healed. 
Not by his power, not by his wisdom, by his wounds. I don't think you need to behold the power of God. I think you need to behold the woundedness of God. The God who opened himself up and took it all in, who faced the hellish torment himself and agonized in the garden through the entire time upon the cross for you. And when you see his woundedness, that is what Paul is saying transforms you. So he says that we are then being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. The image of Jesus. You start to become more and more like him because you become more and more open, more loving, more giving, more truthful, more compassionate, more willing, more bold, more free, more confident because your sufficiency is found in him and you are beholding the fact that he has loved you, that he considers you He has made you worthy. He fully accepts you. He's cleansing you. He is transforming you. He will always be with you. He is always open to you. Vulnerability. Paul would say, that's it. Because, well, Jesus was fully all in for us. He dared greatly. He risked it all. He gave it all. And you are his worthy cause. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much. We're amazed at Paul's openness, the risks he took with this church by being truthful and honest and blunt and loving and Uh, just open to show his own weaknesses and faults and failures and difficulties and struggles, Lord. Thank you um, that you've given us a community where slowly but surely we can do that with one another, that we, (laughs) no one here has to put on a veil of fake, but rather We can love one another because you have loved us. We can accept one another because you've accepted us. We can uh, be seen and be known. I pray, Lord, uh, in an age and a day when it seems like uh, we are very shame-based and shaming each other in our political as well as our cultural um, (laughs) dialogue um, (laughs) through all sorts of ways of not really being close to anyone but just lobbying it through social media, Lord God. I pray that you would make us a community where so many wounded people, struggling people, anxious people, depressed people, people who are just wearied by the pace of this life and the perfectionism required in this life, Lord, that they could come and be welcome to be in a community of grace. Lord, we're amazed you are so This is our confidence. You've been faithful to us. You're faithful to us when we've been unfaithful to you. You You're faithful to us when we have turned away from you. You are loving to us and open to us and wounded by us. And yet, it is by your wounds we are healed time and again. So we pray, Lord, that you would make us that type of a community. There are people, Lord, that we know right now who are facing struggles and difficulties and are unsure and Um, and are afraid they can't even open up to others. We pray, Lord, 
that you'd bring your healing to Carol, that you'd bless Arlene right now as she um, is struggling with memory issues and you know how my mom is just facing these things now, Lord, and I pray that you'd be with her by your spirit to give her the confidence that she is yours and you are hers. We pray that for Carol and Ed as well, Lord, as she's now home from the hospital. We pray, like Lord, that for each of us. And we pray for our neighbors, Lord. You know our neighbors who put on a great facade, but who are hurting inside. We pray for our children, Lord God. Now as they begin school, we know the standards are there and all, but that you would give them such a confidence because we see them through the lens of your grace, through your promises that you can give them a confidence to be open, to be befriend those who are maybe less fortunate, to, to befriend those who uh, might be a little more difficult to befriend, and yet to be, Lord Jesus, your hands and feet to those around them. We pray that this year would be a blessing to them, that they would grow in their daring and courage as followers of you, Lord Jesus. We lift up to you um, our campus ministry in this week that, and the next few that are so important. We pray, Lord God, that you would help us to be open, to be welcoming, to be uh, taking the risks that we need to take in order to draw people to you, Lord Jesus, and that you would use us positioned at Florida Gulf Coast in such a way for your kingdom and your glory, as well as all the other Christian ministries there. Lord God, we're amazed. As we celebrate your supper this day, the night when you would be betrayed and you'd be wounded deeply and rejected by your own very disciples that you loved, Lord, that you would open yourself up and give, and give so profoundly and completely. We thank you for that. We pray, Lord God, you'd prepare us to receive um, your supper today. Forgive us, Lord, for any hard-heartedness we have. Help us to receive all that you give us, Lord, to live lives that reflect more of your glory and your goodness and grace. And bless our time of offering in just a moment, Lord, when we give of our finances. We're not just giving money, Lord. We're going to offer ourselves to you. It's just a token of all that you've given us, and we thank you for that. All these things we lift up to you this day, confident you hear us through Jesus Christ, in whom we have confidence.